Thank the Lord for those good songs this morning. In fact, what we've been singing about really is our topic this morning. <clears throat> As Adam referenced at the very beginning, we've been thinking about the church, ecclesiology, which is a big, fancy, systematic theology word, which just means the doctrine of the church. If you look at what the Bible says about the church, and especially the New Testament, because that's where we see the church appear, and begin to kind of isolate what the church looks like in the book of Acts, what Paul instructs the churches to do in his letters, and what Jesus says about the church and the gospels, and kind of begin to, to pull those things together and begin to sort of outline and systematically what the church is. That's what we've been doing over the course now of the last eight weeks, and we'll be coming up here in the next couple of weeks uh, to the conclusion of this study. But we've been thinking about what the New Testament teaches about the church thinking about its identity, what it really is, what God has made it to be, and also its function, what the church does. And we've been kind of heavily focusing on that function part of it now for the last few weeks, and that's where we'll, we'll be here uh, for the next couple of weeks that we have left. And today we're going to be thinking about the topic that we most associate with the church, and that is the church's worship. The main thing that we do as a church, the main activity that we engage in together is worship. I mean, we're doing it right now, right? The, the thing that we are doing right now is worshiping God. This is a worship service. If you were to tell somebody about our church and invite them to come to our church, you would invite them to a worship service. When you think about church, when people broadly think about church, they think about the main worship service. The main thing that we do is what we do here on Sunday mornings corporately together. We think about worship. We engage in the act of worship. It is the highlight of our week. It is the main thing that we do. It is the key reason for why we gather together is to worship. And so in a sermon series on the church, we should talk about worship. So as we've been doing for most of the sermons in this series, we've been moving through topically. We've been thinking again just there's not really a specific set of passages on what the church is or what the church should do. We've been kind of, again, thinking about the main things associated with the church and looking, we're uh, cross-referencing through the New Testament to see what the New Testament says, what the Bible says about the church. And so as we think about that, as we go through that, we'll be going through and hitting some different verses this morning topically about this idea of the church and its worship. So I guess the place to begin is to ask the question, and this is how I, kind of how I approach a lot of the sermons, because in just trying to, to think through what it is we're supposed to do and be, just ask myself a bunch of questions. So a lot of my sermons are simply laying out a question and trying to answer it. So the question I want to start is with, is with, what is worship? What is worship? I love etymologies. And so the word worship is important to think about etymology, etymologically because... It derives from a older English term, worth-ship. In fact, we don't say worth-ship anymore because it's too hard to say. The TH dropped out over time. It was increasingly difficult to say. So as English became more modernized, we, we took worth-ship and made it worship. But this idea of worship is tied to this idea of worth Worship is the act of recognizing and ascribing worth to someone or something. When we worship, we recognize the worth that someone or something possesses, and we ascribe to it the worth or the value that it is due. 
When we're recognizing the worth of someone or something, we then give it praise or glory based upon that level of value or worth. So for example, if one of my children brings home a good report card, well, if they all bring a good, good, home a good report card that I'm very happy with, they've put a lot of work into the, the, the quarter, they've done the best job that they could, and, and they've done really well, they've excelled, I'm going to give them some kind of praise. I'm going to give them some kind of honor or acknowledgement that corresponds to what they've done. I'm not going to bow down before them and give them worship like I would give God, but I might take them to Dairy Queen for an ice cream, right? Always helps when I get something out of it as well, right? So I'm going to give them something that corresponds to the, their worth or to their value in that moment. Perhaps at work, if you have, have been there for a certain length of service, for instance, or if you've accomplished something very successful, you've done a good, good job on a project, your boss may give you some kind of a reward or may recognize you in some way to show your worth or your value to your company. So in these cases, someone is evaluating you and recognizing you and your worth and your value, and they are rewarding you on the basis of your worthiness. Now, we wouldn't use the word worship in those instances, but it really does illustrate the kind of thing that we are doing when we offer worship to God. Only God really is worthy of worship. But the illustration, I think, holds true. When we worship God, we recognize his worth, and we respond to that understanding by ascribing praise and glory to him in like measure, in a way that appropriately reflects his worthiness and value. We see this in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, where David says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. David there has an understanding, a recognition of who God is and his greatness. And he is enjoining those in the heavens. He is enjoining his own people. He is calling himself to worship God in a way that reflects his glory and his honor. That is worship. When we think about the church, though, we're thinking about worship not necessarily on an individual level, though we are worshiping individually, we're thinking about worship as a corporate activity. Corporate worship, we might call it. When we think about corporate worship, we're talking about the church gathering together, right? Adam reminded us in the call to worship. Ecclesia means assembly, gathering. Why have we gathered together? Why have we assembled together? It is for the purpose of worshiping together of recognizing the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of God and ascribing his worth and his value to him as a result of it. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology textbook defines worship in this corporate sense. I don't want to lose that sense this morning, this corporate sense. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and hearts together. He goes on to add that all aspects of our lives are supposed to glorify God. So this definition specifies that worship is something that we do, especially when we come together in God's presence, when we are conscious conscious of our adoration of him, and when we praise him with our voices and speak about him so that others may hear. 
So we are, we've come in this morning all from different places, our different homes, different parts of the city, and we've gathered here to sing praises to God. And certainly it's something that we are doing individually, but the power of the church's worship is that, that the fact that we're doing it together, that we have assembled for this purpose because we acknowledge that we have one Lord. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one confession. We've gathered together to lift up the name of this great, awesome glorious God. Now, it is true that every believer worships individually, and really even more than just what we do here this morning ought to be an act of worship, right? All of life should be an act of worship. Paul will make mention in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices because this is our spiritual act of worship or our reasonable worship that we give to the Lord. And when we are scattered as a church, that is when we're not assembled here, when we are dispersed out into the world, into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools, hopefully we are worshiping God in everything that we do. And that, that when we are worshiping God in everything that, we're do, that we do, it's having some kind of edifying effect on our lives and upon our families and upon our church. But we need to remember that because we are a visible local church, we regularly assemble together as the body of Christ to worship God. We do this because we have covenant, covenanted together to live together in covenant relationship with one another to be the body of Christ, to be his people. And the most essential thing that we do as a people, as a corporate gathering, is to worship the Lord together, the same Lord who has saved us from our sins, who has reconciled us to God, and he was brought us together into his family. And so it is needful that we purposefully and regularly come together as a church for the purpose of worship. And this happens immediately, instantaneously in, this, in the biblical record. At the ascension, Luke 24, 51, right? Jesus was there. He was about ready to ascend. He was ministering to his disciples. And it says that after he was carried up into heaven, his disciples did what? This is Luke 24, 51 to 53. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus goes up into heaven, but that, that act initiates their corporate worshiping together. And even when it was time for them to depart and return to Jerusalem, they made it a custom to go to the temple to bless God. Why are they going to the temple? They're still Jews. That was the place of worship. That's where God's presence was. They go to the temple for the act of worship, of praising God, especially for his gift of giving them the Messiah. In Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, we read is sort of the first summary picture that Luke gives to us of the church after Pentecost. It says, day after... And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having fervor, favor with all the people. So again, what are they doing? As a church, they're gathering in the temple. Again, still Jews. That's where they're supposed to go worship. They go, and they're worshiping in the temple. They're also worshiping in their homes as they come together as a church, having fellowship with one another, but even more, praising God because of his grace in granting them Jesus, the sacrifice for their sins. The main reason why we gather as a church is to worship God, to praise Him and to glorify Him for who He is and for what He has done for us in Christ. So worship is essential to our existence as a church. 
We can say that we exist for this purpose. We exist for the purpose of praising and glorifying God. And we do this not haphazardly, but deliberately. We do it intentionally, right? That's why we don't just show up whenever we feel like it. We show up on Sunday morning at 1030, every week regardless of circumstances, unless there's a major hurricane that comes through or something, right? We are here every Sunday morning to do this very thing. And so that's why marking this off, marking this time off, Every Sunday morning at 10.30 is important, not just for you. It's important for all of us because we are blessed as the entire body comes together to worship together, and we are living out our purpose as a church, the gathering of the church to worship God. So when we gather together for worship, we are celebrating our reason for our existence. We gather to praise God and thank Him because of the glorious salvation He has granted to us in Christ. If you, take the gospel of, if you take the gospel away, there's no longer any reason for us to exist, right? There's no more reason for us to come together to worship. But because we are God's people, and because we are grateful for God's saving work in our lives, it befits us to assemble regularly for this purpose. In fact, Wayne Grudem writes again in his Systematic Theology book, he says, the primary reason that God called us into the assembly of the church is that as a corporate assembly— we might worship him. The primary reason that God has called us into the assembly of the church is so that as a corporate assembly, we might worship him. We are here because God has called us and saved us to do this very thing. God has saved us and incorporated us into a church so that we might worship him. So when we gather together as a church and worship together, we are fulfilling our purpose. We are doing what God intended for us to do. Edmund Clowney, who's another theologian, has written a book called The Church. And he explains in the, in the book that the gathering of the church for worship really does more than simply cause us to fulfill our existence. We're really fulfilling God's eternal intentions to have a people who will praise him. Again, this goes back, he traces all the way back into the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, God demanded of Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me or that they may worship me in the wilderness. God brought them out in order that he might bring them in, into his assembly, to the great company of those who stand before his face. God's assembly at Sinai is therefore the immediate goal of the Exodus. God brought them out to bring them to himself, to gather to himself a people to who, with whom he would live in covenant relationship. He would bless them and care for them and provide for all their needs, and they would worship him alone. They would devote their lives to him alone and give him glory. God brings his people into his presence that they might hear his voice and worship him. But the worshiping assembly at Mount Sinai couldn't stay there forever, right? The, it was not God's intention that Israel would remain at Sinai forever. They would have to go to the promised land. And even in the promised land, they were to take possession of it. They were to go and to tend their, 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 their pasture, their property. They were to build homes. They were to settle down. They were to live this community life. But they couldn't be at the tabernacle or at the temple Forever, And so God ordained festivals for them. Three times a year, they would gather for a week at a time to come to the temple or the tabernacle, and they would come to worship him. 
So we can say that Israel was a nation formed for worship. They were called to assemble in the courts of the Lord and to praise together the name of the Most High God. But we know the story of the Old Testament. Israel failed. They worshiped other gods. They worshiped idols. And so they abandoned their purpose for which God had called them to gather. But God's purposes would not be frustrated. Not only Israel, but all the nations of the earth, God said, would assemble before his throne to worship him. In fact, we see the first roots of that at Pentecost. As Peter is there preaching to those who have been assembled from all different parts of the world, as they are being saved, as they're coming out from these various cultures to salvation, we're seeing the first fruits of how God is bringing the different nations together to worship him. Peter proclaims the gospel. A great harvest of redemption was being brought in. The church of Jesus Christ was coming into existence, and the believers began to gather together to worship the Lord. We see that God's purposes for a people gathered around his throne to worship him is not just merely something that we see on earth, but it's happening even in the heavenly realms. As we are worshiping now, we are fulfilling our eternal purpose, for we know that in the heavens, the great assembly of heavenly beings and the redeemed who have already preceded us in death are gathering around the throne day and night to worship God and his Christ. Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11 Read that the four living creatures, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We see in Revelation chapter 5, verses that I read earlier, in the time of prayer, verses 9 through 14, that they sang a new song in the heavens, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So I hope that we're seeing here from the continuity of the scriptures from beginning to end, that corporate worship is not optional, but it is essential for the church. We can do a lot of things. We can do a lot of good things. We can have great work days to spruce up the beauty of the church. We can have great evangelistic campaigns where we're going out and meeting the needs of our community and, and sharing the gospel with people. There are so many things that we are and should be a part of, but essential to what we are as a church is corporate worship. Corporate worship brings to expression the very being of the church. 
we are giving a display to the nations of what is happening right now in the heavenly assembly. We need to see, though, even more that earthly worship is not a dress dress rehearsal for heaven or preparation for eternity, but it is us fulfilling our purpose. We are doing exactly what God designed us to do. Again, Wayne Grudem says, worship is therefore a direct expression of our ultimate purpose for living. So corporate worship is both necessary and good. God deserves our worship. He's saved us to worship him. And for those reasons, we must devote ourselves to corporate worship. We must worship God deliberately and faithfully. And that brings us then to the question about how we are to worship. How does the church worship? And again, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, Christians have had lots of ideas, lots of debates about what that ought to look like for a long time. And we are kind of thrust into the middle of that history. But we can take what's happened in Christian history with regard to how we are to worship, we can broadly categorize it into two categories. The first approach is what is called the normative principle. The normative principle. And according to the normative principle, anything not prohibited by Scripture would be an acceptable means of worshiping God as long as it is agreeable to the church, as long as it contributes to the peace of the church. Now, to give a very absurd example, okay, very absurd. The Scriptures do not prohibit us barking like dogs in worship, all right? So we go through the call to worship, we sing a couple of hymns, we have the prayer, we have uh, more singing, and then before the preaching we have this moment of barking like dogs as an act of worship to God. There's nothing in Scripture that prohibits that. And if we could all agree on it, it, was, it contributed to the peace of the church, edification of the church, then according to the normative principle, that would be acceptable. That's, again, a very absurd example. Maybe a better example is something that we actually do, which would be giving the announcements, right? There's no place in the Scripture that says announcements ought to be given. There's no mention that you have to make announcements. And yet, we do it because we see that it's a beneficial part of the church. I don't remember who it was that told me this. It's been a while. It might have been Bruce that told me this. Well, this is a long time ago. I don't like the announcements. The day that Adam told me giving announcements was his spiritual gift was like the, one of the days of great blessing in my life, right? I don't like to do announcements, but I think I was maybe sharing that with Bruce. And Bruce was like, man, the announcements, that's critical to worship. I'm like, really? It's like, tells you the church is alive. Tells you the church is, is doing something. Church is ministering. The church is active. The church is, is, is alive. And so there's nothing in the scriptures that says that we need to give announcements, that we should give announcements. But we do it because we are exhorting our members to be involved, Right? Love the exhortation that Adam gives to us about Wednesday nights and Bible studies and all the things that we're doing, right? He does it with such eagerness, right? Yes, come on, let's all do this. Let's all be a part. Let's all come together. It's a way of communication, but it's a way of exhorting our members to be a part. So the normative principle is more permissive. It gives us the freedom to worship God in ways that he has not expressly prohibited But I would also say the downside, the danger of it is, is that it does open the church up to more error 
and less edifying means of worship than what God has directed in his word. And even if you notice about the announcements, right? When do we do the announcements? We do it at the very beginning. We all come in, we sit down, we're kind of beginning to stop milling about, we take our seats, Adam gives us the announcements, and then what happens? Then we go into the call to worship. And the call to worship is kind of like the official, now's the time to start. So as people are filtering in, as we're kind of all getting together, before we get into this act of worshiping together as a church, we've given the announcements, we've communicated those things that are important, but even then we're kind of bracketing them off, then having them as an official part of our worship. And so the normative principle is, again, more permissive, but there is also some danger in that. The second approach to worship, and the one that seems to be better and wiser and the one we try to follow as best we can is what we call the regulative principle. Our word regulative comes from the Latin word meaning rule. The regulative principle of worship refers to worship that is ruled or guided by Scripture, and particularly in the New Testament where we see the church worshiping God, where instructions are given to the church for how it ought to worship. We believe that the New Testament gives us a description of what worship should look like, or give us directions for what worship should include. The New Testament becomes our rule or standard for worship. And as God's people, we submit ourselves to his word. So we order our worship around God's revelation for what worship should look like. In other words, we believe that God is worshiped in the way that he has given to us. He prefers to be worshiped in the way that he has revealed to us in his word, and so we follow that. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says that all things regarding worship should be done decently and in order. By the regulative principle, we believe that the New Testament guides us in that effort. God's word will never lead us into error. And just the opposite, right? God's word will always lead us to honor God and bring him delight. And so again, while it's not a hard and fast law, there seems to be good wisdom in following the regulative principle. Even within the regulative principle, there are some things that Scripture does not specify, does not give us the liturgy to follow, like the order of worship that we've put together. I won't say it's arbitrary, but we're just simply doing what the church has done for a good number of years now. We may tweak things from time to time, but there's no liturgy that is specified for us in the Bible. It doesn't specify for us how we are to sing. We know that we're to sing. It doesn't specify how we're to do that how many people sing on the stage, or even what instruments that we use. It doesn't give us instructions on when to pray, or how long to pray, or how long the sermons ought to be. It, doesn't, it tells us how, that we are to observe the ordinances, but it doesn't tell us how to do them, how to incorporate them. So even here within the regulative principle, there is some grace and freedom to determine how best to obey what the Scriptures lead us to do in worship. What I want to focus on here are the elements that are to be included in the regulative principle. And there are things that we do in our worship service, so it should be very comforting and very encouraging to us. What elements or practices does the New Testament specify should be included in corporate worship? And we'll start with the most obvious, and that is the singing. Corporate worship includes singing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says something very similar. We, of course, know that 
the Psalms were instrumental to the worship of the uh, nation of Israel in the Old Testament. The Psalms were the ancient hymn book of ancient Israel. That's what they used when they gathered together at the, at the temple to sing, uh, to worship God. They would sing the Psalms. And singing seems to be an essential part of heavenly worship, as we've already seen in Revelation 4 and 5. Congregational singing glorifies God as we sing together of God's attributes and of his saving work for us. We are declaring God's praise, and we mutually encourage one another as we praise God together. When we are singing these songs in praise and worship to God, we are glorifying him. We are declaring his goodness and his worth. But we're also addressing one another. We mentioned this in a different message, right? That we're also addressing one another. We're encouraging one another. As I'm singing these songs, I'm trusting that my singing of praise is encouraging you to praise. That you're being, uh, re- you're being encouraged. You're being edified in the truth that is, that is true about God, in the truth of the gospel by which we live and move and have our being. We declare God's praise, and we mutually encourage one another together as we praise God. And this is why we must be careful about the songs that we sing, because these songs are the conduits of praise. We want to sing truthfully about who God is and what he has done for us. And so I really appreciate Bruce thinking through very carefully the kinds of songs that we sing for our corporate worship on Sunday mornings. So corporate worship includes singing. Secondly, corporate worship includes scripture reading. Corporate worship includes scripture reading. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. The Lord delights in hearing his word read. And in fact, this morning, I had to take the Sunday school class, the older kids, because Sheldon was sick. And we were reading through Psalm 29, and we were, had them circling the word voice, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, right? The Lord's word is powerful. The Lord's word is strong. The Lord's word is true. The Lord's word is powerful in our lives. It does things. God uses his spirit to take his word to do so many things in our lives, to sanctify us, to encourage us, to convict us of sin, to reassure us of our faith. And so as part of us worshiping God, we read his word back to him. And as we read his word back to him, we hear it ourselves, and we are challenged by it, and we are changed by it, and we are encouraged by it. Now, we don't have a particular segment in our church, in our service, where we read scripture per se, but scripture is read publicly in almost every element of our worship. Adam, when he leads us in call to worship, he's always got a passage of Scripture picked out to read to us this morning. Romans 8, right? How encouraging was that to hear that we are not separated from the love of Christ? How encouraging to hear that because of what Jesus has done for us, the Spirit lives in us and dwells in us and has made us alive so that we live in the resurrection life of Jesus. And so these these Scriptures that he reads to us, and I know sometimes he always asks me, I got a long one to read today. I'm like, do it. Why? Because 1 Timothy 4.13 says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. If there's anything that we need when we come to church, it is to hear God's Word. And so the more of that we can get in our worship services, I think the better off that we are. Um, 
I just was thinking, when Adam reads these, these passages of Scripture to us, they're meant to call our minds to the fact that we are worshiping God, right? The call to worship. Remind us why we're here. It should be obvious to us, right? But we're all a little bit dull sometimes. We're sinful people at times. And so we need to redirect. Our minds might be going in a thousand different directions. We need to be redirected for the purpose of, we, for the purpose of assembling or to be reminded of who God is and what he's done for us so that we might be provoked to worship him. And so we have Scripture reading in that element of our service. Bruce sometimes may read a passage of Scripture or a verse of Scripture as he's introducing a song. Even more so, we are singing the songs. This morning, I don't know if you noticed this, the song, I Will Wait For You, is a rendition of Psalm 130. Go through and read that. Now, it's not, again, a direct word-for-word putting the psalm to music, but the correspondence there is clear. We sang Psalm 130. We sang parts of Roman 8, Romans 8 this morning. How cool is that to sing about the second song, right? That we can never be separated from the love of God after Adam read that to us in Romans chapter 8. We've sung Psalm 48.1. Great is the Lord, worthy of worship, worthy of praise. And so even in the singing, we incorporate the scriptures to help us to sing praise to God. When I pray, I try to, to, to lead us off with some kind of a, a, a verse of Scripture or passage of Scripture that will summarize maybe what we've been seeing or to prepare our hearts for prayer or to guide us in our prayer time. Of course, in our sermons, now not lately, we haven't been expository lately, but when we're preaching more expositorily, as I like to do, we usually read a passage of Scripture before we go into the explanation of it. When we observe the Lord's Supper, I try to read some passage that will connect what we've talked about in the sermon to the Lord's table, and of course, we'll read those appropriate passages that relate to the Lord's Supper and that. At the end of the service, when Wade closes us out with a benediction, usually he is reading a passage of Scripture to us to encourage us as we go. So our aim is that our worship will be thoroughly scriptural from beginning to end, and we can ensure that it is scriptural by reading Scripture. All right, so corporate worship includes Scripture reading. Number three, corporate worship includes prayer. Corporate worship includes prayer. We see this was the pattern of the early church when they gathered. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And Paul instructs the Colossians that when they come together, Colossians 4, 2, and 3, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. So he's asking for them to pray for him and his ministry, even in their corporate gatherings together. Like Scripture reading, prayer is woven into the fabric of our corporate worship. Again, sometimes Adam will pray for us as we begin to worship, either whether it's to praise God corporately or to uh, encourage us to have a, a prayerful or a, a worshipful attitude coming into the Lord's presence in the right demeanor. Bruce will pray for us occasionally as he leads the singing, applying what we've been singing to our hearts. I will pray at the end of the sermon to close out and ask God to, uh, to bless his word in our lives and apply it to our lives. The benediction that Wade gives to us at the end of the service is a kind of prayer. It's a prayer of God's blessing over his people, a, a prayer of encouragement. They might go out reassured, knowing of his love and of his, of his care for us as we go, directing us in how we ought to live our lives. And of course, we have a segment of our service where we've incorporated over the past couple of years that we call the pastoral prayer, in which I or another elder will pray for the congregation. And in this prayer, I will use Scripture, a Scripture passage, to guide us in our 
praying, as we think through the basic tenets of the gospel, as we think about God's character of who he is and what he is doing in our lives. And I'll, I'll pray that God would bless you and help you where you are. I can't pray for each of you individually in this time up here, but I trust that God knows what's going on in your life. And I will pray for you corporately that God will be working in your life to accomplish his purposes, whatever you're going through in each particular Sunday. So we have this prayer time in which the pastor prays for his people. Prayer is thoroughly woven into the life of our worship. So corporate worship includes prayer. Number four, corporate worship includes collecting an offering. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. There was a, um, a famine going on in Jerusalem. Paul was especially concerned for the, the Jewish Christians, the Jewish saints that were uh, suffering under the famine. So he had charged the various churches where he had been preaching and ministering to take up a collection that he would take personally to them to help alleviate their needs. And he addresses the Corinthians by saying, look, put something aside on the first day of the week. In this, this essence, when you come to church, collect an offering that will be set aside to help those who are suffering in Jerusalem. So we also incorporate giving into our worship. When we give, we are reminded of God's provision for us. We give a small portion back from what he has provided for us to meet our needs. We, I want us to think that when we give, we're not giving to the church, that we're giving to God. We're giving to him. We're giving thankfully. We're giving joyfully. We're giving liberally. We're giving sacrificially. Our giving is a response to the gospel's work in us. The Lord directs that the offering to be used by the church should go to support the ministry of the church and to provide help for those who need it, such as the poor and missionaries. Of course, that's what Paul was doing here, and that's what we also want to do. So corporate worship includes collecting an offering. Number five, corporate worship includes preaching. Corporate worship includes preaching. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. We've already mentioned the Scripture reading is part of the regulative principle, but here Paul also says that preaching and teaching is essential to worship. Again, kind of going back to the Old Testament, when the people gathered together to worship God, the tabernacle and the temple, God always blessed His people with His Word. The priests were there to explain. They were there to read the Scriptures and to explain the Scriptures, to give them an understanding of what God required of them and to encourage them to live in faithfulness to God's design. Through His Word, God reaffirmed His covenant to His people. He rebuked them for, his sin, for their sin. He instructed them in how to live, and He exhorted them in the way that they should walk. And Christian preaching fulfills a similar purpose. When the church gathers together, we preach God's Word. We open it up. We read it, we explain it, and then we apply it. As Paul related to Timothy, preaching involves both instruction and exhortation. In other words, it's important for us 
to say what the Word says, to explain what the Word says, but then also to encourage you to live your lives around that Word, to take the Word and to incorporate it into your life and to live it out as best befits God's people. Instruction without exhortation is an academic lecture. An exhortation without instruction is a pep rally. We need both. We need to know what the Scripture says. We also need to be exhorted to do what it says. Preaching is God's grace to us. We don't typically think of preaching as worship, do we? We think of worship mostly as the singing, maybe the praying, maybe the communion. We think of, it, of, of, of the preaching as sort of not worship. But understand that when you are listening to God's Word being proclaimed, you are worshiping God. Your heart ought to be in agreement with His Word that what is being said is true and is right. And it is thrilling your heart and your soul and your mind to hear what God says and then to be able to want to do that unto Him according to the power of the Spirit. So preaching is God's grace to us. It is an essential part of worship because God speaks to us through His Word. By His Word we are sanctified and we are equipped to live in obedience to Him. So corporate worship includes preaching. Then sixth and last, corporate worship includes the ordinances. Corporate worship includes the ordinances, observing the ordinances. And we spent a lot of time last week on the ordinances, so I'm not going to go through all of that again. But I'll just say here that they are acts of worship. The ordinances are to be observed with the church, gathered together and present. And we perform them as worship unto the Lord. We take the Lord's Supper every Sunday as an act of worship to remember the Lord's death for us and the relationship that we have with God on the basis of that death. The reason why we are able to come here and worship God is because of Christ's death, his sacrifice for us. So we worship God on the basis of what Christ has done, and the Lord's Supper helps us to remember that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it in an evangelistic way. Are there any who are not believing as part of our worship service? Any non-Christians, any unbelievers? The Lord's Supper is meant to proclaim the gospel to them. When we proclaim, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the gospel to one another. We're to encourage one another of the fact that Christ has died for our sins. That he has joined us together as the body of Christ. We call one another to keep going on to keep walking in faithfulness. But we also proclaim Christ's death to God, acknowledging that our salvation is his work of grace and giving him praise for it. And we don't celebrate baptism with every service. We don't always have someone to baptize, and we're not really set up for baptism on a Sunday morning cor corporate worship service. But when we do celebrate it, we've lately been going over to uh, a family's home from our church, and we baptize in the pool. We don't just simply baptize and, and be done with it, right? What do we do? We, we worship. We sing songs. We pray. We read scripture. We share about what baptism is and why we do it. We baptize the person who's come to faith in Christ. All those things are done together as an act of worship. And so we celebrate the ordinances and observe the ordinances as part of our corporate worship together. So these are the elements of the regulative principle and because we want to strive for faithfulness to the New Testament pattern of worship, we practice them in our own worship service. We need to remember that as a church, we exist 
Soli Deo Gloria, that banner back over there. We exist for the glory of God alone. He has saved us in order to worship him. May we always be a church that faithfully worships our great God in the way that most pleases him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have called us to be a worshiping people. Were it not for the gospel of Jesus Christ, were it not for your grace to us in his sacrificial death on the cross, we would not worship you. We would worship ourselves. We would go and worship other things. We'd create gods to worship, gods of stone and metal and wood. We are, as Calvin said, idol factories. We are looking for something to worship, but our sinfulness leads us away from worshiping you. And so we're thankful this morning to be reminded of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that has changed us, that has saved us from our sins, that has given us new life, and how now our hearts sing with glory and praise to you because of what you've done. We're thankful, Lord, that we can worship you. We're thankful that you call us to lay our lives on the altar as living sacrifices because it is our reasonable act of worship that we offer to you. I pray you'd help us to worship. But even more, Lord, I pray you'd help us to see that our worship is not to be isolated or separated from the church, but it is because of you doing this in all of our lives together that we come together as a church to be the people that you have saved for your great name, to do what you have destined us to do, and that is to worship you. May you be glorified in our worship. May we be careful to worship you as you see fit, according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.